0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Remember when February meant that pitchers and catchers were to report? You remember that, right? And then do you remember March meant that spring training games would take place? Do you remember that time? And do you remember when April meant opening day? You remember all those things? No, more importantly, do you remember when Major League Baseball was a thing? When Major League Baseball was a sport? Neither do I. Spring training games were supposed to start yesterday, but instead of seeing the most electric players in the sport taking BP, instead all we saw was the commissioner walking back and forth, back and forth to negotiations. A whole lot of walking going on. Yesterday was supposed to be the drop dead date. If they did not have a deal in place, they were going to cancel the first month of the season. Well, apparently there was enough walking and enough progress that took course over the course of the day that the deadline has been pushed back to later today. In other words, they walked their asses off. You not know, say cool, but honestly at this point, I don't even care. I really don't even care. I don't care enough to even say cool. Look, I'm not going to get into a debate about the luxury tax threshold, the pre-arbitration bonus pool, the minimum salaries. I mean, because really, is there any fan anywhere that wants to hear anything at all about any of that? But apparently the owners and the league office would rather have everybody focus on that than on the players or the game. I mean, pretty freaking predictable, if you ask me, because this is exactly how MLB does things and has. I mean, there has never been this much young, electric talent in the game. Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto, Ronald Acuna Jr., Vladimir Guerrero Jr., yet MLB wants everybody to focus on the owners instead and everybody walking back and forth. I mean, yeah, I understand there are problems with the the on-the-field product, but I trust that Tatis, Soto, and company can fix it before I trust the commissioner and the owners to do so. Shohei Ohtani just turned in one of the greatest seasons in the history of the game, arguably the greatest of all time. We should be seeing him right now. We should be seeing what he's going to do to raise the bar, to have an encore. Instead, we're seeing Hal Steinbrenner in a polo and khakis. Like, MLB never misses a chance to miss a chance. They could be out trying to make the game more popular, trying to connect more fans with the game in ways they never have before. Instead, what do they do? They slash minor league teams, and now they're looking to slash games from the major league season. And if you can get rid of games in April, why should anybody show up and watch them in May or June? Really, why should we give a damn about games then if you're going to get rid of games now? Why do I have to? The thing is, we don't. Everything about this was a choice. Everything about this was a choice made by the owners. They didn't have to have a lockout. They didn't have to drag their feet for weeks of negotiations. They didn't have to cancel spring training games and put chunks of the regular season in jeopardy. They chose to do this. They wanted to do this. And this is the same crew that was so stupid that back in 2020, they could not figure out how to get their sport underway during a pandemic. So instead of being the first sport back, they were practically the last. They want this. This is not a bug. It's a feature. Yeah, I know. Supposedly, it's billionaires v. millionaires. But here's the truth. Player salaries, and don't put me in a spot where you think I'm pro player and I want the interviews, because that's garbage. I've heard that so many times. That's not what this is. Fact is, Players' salaries have been on the decline each year for the last four years, while the game's revenues have been increasing. Now, let me just digress for one minute. You may say, Rome, I don't give a damn about either. I don't want to hear about billionaires versus millionaires. I get that. I understand that. But understand what I just said. Players' salaries have been on the decline. But still, that's not enough for the owners. They jack with service time. They keep future stars in the minors too long so they can screw them on contracts down the road. Again, you may not care about millionaires that are getting jacked with, but they are. Remember when that bonehead, Kevin Mather, then president and CEO of the Mariners, was bumping his gums trying to impress a rotary club? Remember that guy? Remember when he was bragging about manipulating service time and complaining about players who have not mastered English as a second language. Do you remember that bonehead? I'm here to tell you that bonehead probably was not an outlier bonehead. I'm guessing there are a lot of other team presidents, CEOs, execs, and owners who feel the same way. It seems like they really don't like the players. It seems like they really don't even like the game. And they're just too dumb to realize that the players are the game. They initiated the lockout. It's a lockout. And then they waited a reported 43 days before making a first proposal. Does that sound like a group that loves the sport? Does that sound like a group that loves the game? Does that sound like a group that loves or even gives a damn about the fans? Hell no. Let me tell you what they love. Let me tell you what they love. They love money. Hey, listen, I know the days of owning a pro sports team for the love of the game are long gone. I understand that the O'Malley family is not walking through that door. But I've never seen a group of owners who seem to hate their own game as much as this crew does. Like actively hate the game. Like going out of their way to hurt the game. Forget telling if the commissioner loves the game. I can't even tell if he likes it because all of his major moves have been about trying to change the game for the worse. I'm not even saying that he's actively trying to sabotage the sport's popularity, but could you tell if he was? This is the same guy who crapped all over the trophy that is supposed to matter most. Remember that? Remember when the commissioner took a dump on the trophy? You'd have a big dump in your pants. The trophy that the players give everything to win. The commissioner's trophy. Piece of metal. He dumped on his own trophy. You'd have a big dump. That is still not talked about nearly enough. That doesn't get nearly enough run that he took a dump on his own trophy. He took a dump on the trophy that has his own name on it. Can you imagine Adam Silver Actively dumping on the Adam Silver trophy. I mean, say what you want about Silver, but could you imagine him taking a dump on a trophy with his name on it? That's what this guy did. And speaking of Silver, let's not forget that when MLB has been doing as much as they can to change their game, Silver had to tell MLB why their game was perfect for in-game betting. These dopes don't even know what they have on their hands. Silver had to tell them, hey, yo, yo, you actually have the best sport for in-game betting because you have the slowest, most boring sport, but mostly the slowest sport. It's perfect. So instead of taking a big dump on your trophy, take a look at what you have right there. Like if the NFL's commissioner is all about protecting the shield, MLB's commish is is all about taking, I don't know, a dump on the sport. You and you know what, even more importantly, a dump on the fans. Piece of metal. Like, don't tell me they're not making money. We have plenty of evidence that they're making it hand over fist, that they're making it by the truckload. Atlanta made a profit of 104 million bucks last year, 104 mil in profit. But here's the ultimate proof. And believe this if they weren't making money, they would sell. Surely they aren't so stupid that they would stay on as owners of teams that were hemorrhaging money the way they claim to be, right? If they were losing that much money, they would sell. It's as if they're hearing people call this sport irrelevant, and then they're determined to prove that everybody's right. Like, you think our sport sucks? You're right. It does. We're the worst. If you're MLB, you're in a daily battle for attention. We all are. You should, if you're MLB, you should as Les Need says wake up every single day sprinting to make this game more relevant more exciting and more engaging for the fans instead what you've got are billionaires complaining that it's not fair that they don't make all the money MLB teams are making a ton of money They're more valuable than ever, and that's before the tidal wave of cash that's going to come when gambling fully arrives. But apparently that's still not enough for the owners. Hell, even they have the audacity to complain, we're poor, we're not making enough money, we need to lock the players out. Hey, listen, if that's true, and I don't believe that for a second, but if that is true, whose fault is that? If that's true, that's on you, the owners. If you're losing money in this game, then you're horrible at business. From the commissioner to the owners, they are terrible at business if they're losing that much money. Or they hate the game. Or they're not losing that much money and they're greedy as hell. Or all of the above. Like, we're sitting here in the hospital on a ventilator. You may as well just rip the plug out of the wall. Why keep this comatose sport alive? Keep doing you, baseball. I've got one question, though. Just one question. Excuse my ignorance. I do not negotiate for a living. It's not my bag. It's not my deal. I've got people who do that for me. However, back to this whole walking thing. What is with all the walking between MLB and the MLBPA? All I see, I don't know what kind of negotiations going on if any at all, but I'm seeing a hell of a lot of walking. What is with both sides walking one way or the other? That's all I see. Like, what the hell is that? You guys couldn't just rent a big conference room at the Marriott? Every banquet hall in America is booked. No one thought about being within shouting distance and that might speed this thing up? I mean, never mind FaceTime or Zoom, you know, serious technology like that. How about a couple of cans and a long piece of string? I have never seen so much walking in my life. And no one's laughing harder right now, probably, than Bobby Bonilla. (laughs) I'm sure this dude's check still cashes regardless of if there's a season or not, a lockout or not. Best contract ever. My man's walking all the way to the bank. Hey, oh. (laughs) Maybe that's why the owners are so prickly. They're still pissed about Bobby Bonilla's contract a whole lot of walking going on and now a message from my friends at discover and it's all about rewards if you're a loyal credit card customer you should be rewarded for that loyalty preferably with something that is useful you know like cash back match for instance discover matches all the cash back that you have earned at the end of your first year finally rewards that actually make sense Discover. Exceptionally common sense. Learn more at discover.com slash match. Limitations do apply. It is Jeff passing Jeff, my man, it's been a minute or two since we have spoken. How you doing, Jeff? How is life for you right now? My
1: goodness, Van Smack, it is good to be back in the place that knew me before I was the guy on the TV at the bar who makes everyone say, why is John Mulaney's ugly older brother talking about baseball? <laughs> and... and This is a good reminder, clones. When when you frequent the jungle, you are not necessarily resigned to a life like Caleb in Green Bay, spending half your day picking pork rind crumbs out of your creepy flesh-colored beard. And speaking of losers, Jim, who failed to show up in the smack-off, shout-out to Damon Amendolaura, who, uh, who should get far more credit than he does for somehow transmogrifying from horse to human. The last time I saw such equine failure, Jim, was when seven other three-year-olds lined up against straight-up G and thought they could beat him. And uh, speaking of that 60,000 case, you won, Jimmy. I'm truly hoping that you will put it towards some good causes. Brad and Corona always could use the fresh cycle of the juice. We know Left and Laguna need to bail out for ghost casting. Uh, I would love it if you could buy the rest of The Jungle subscriptions for Hooked on Phonics because letting those two win the last seven smack-offs is a sign that either English is a hard concept to grasp or the only people who are worth a damn that listen to this show have worse phone connections than me in 2018. And now that I've upgraded, it would not be a proper re-entry into The Jungle without a good haiku. Paul's dog laid a turd. It was his call to the show. Run him, Don't rack him. And with all that said, with my triumphant return in the books, Jim, let's talk
0: some baseball. Dude, I don't even know what to do with that. Like uh, let me pick up my jaw, my shattered jaw off of the ground. Congratulations on winning the twenty twenty two Smack Off, Jeff. Exactly. very well done. I do want to correct you. We didn't win sixty grand on Sunday. We won closer to fifty grand, but thank you very much. Dude, that was all incredible. Right, my right. man, my man, welcome back. Jeff freaking passing. If you need him, no guest has ever answered the question, hey man, how you doing? Quite like that before. Good to have you back, Jeff. So well done. Why don't we talk a little bit of baseball? So, before we get into the details of the lockout, and again, very well done by you, yesterday was supposed to be the deadline for the deal to prevent losing regular season games. So, where do things stand right now as it relates to negotiations? Jeff, what is the latest?
1: Jim, there was progress yesterday, but I'm not sure it's enough progress to get a deal done. Uh, You have to remember, going into yesterday, the Major League Baseball Players Association and MLB were extraordinarily far apart in what they wanted in this new labor deal. And the players look at this as a moment in their history, an important moment, where if they don't stand up after years of service time manipulation, after four consecutive years of their salaries going down as revenues went up in their sport, uh, at a time where they feel like they need to take more control of the game because the people who are in charge of it are leading it to a bad place. Uh, And and I understand people are going to look at this like, oh, it's just players trying to get more money. But there's also the counterpoint to that, which is that Uh, I wrote this yesterday. It's a zero-sum game, Jim. Either the players get it or the league and the owners get it. And if you are on the side of the game, then you are on the side of the players because they are the game. And so the players right now, they're looking at the deal that's on the table, and they're saying to themselves, this isn't good enough. And the question is, how resolute are they? How willing are they to walk away from not just opening day, but potentially much deeper into the season – to stand up for what they believe
0: in. How you doing? But to that point, Jeff Passon joining us. Hey, Jeff, to the point, why don't we just kind of uh, go at that question that you just posed, how resolute are the players? For instance, the Major League Baseball Players Association has long been viewed as the strongest and most powerful of the player unions for a long, long time. What is it like right now? Is it as powerful, and are they as resolute as they've been in the past?
1: 25 years of labor peace, Jim, does something to a union. And I'm not going to say that the MLBPA was complacent because I don't think complacency is the right word for it. But it certainly wasn't like the late 60s when the union formed in the 70s when it gained strength in uh, the 80s and early 90s when it was winning every labor battle. I mean, if they're in the position they're in right now, frankly, because the last two labor deals tilted demonstrably in favor of Major League Baseball. And so they feel like there's a lot for them to claw back. The problem, of course, is leverage, and they don't have a whole lot right now. You know, they're offering expanded playoffs. They're offering advertising on uniforms. But aside from those financial incentives – uh there's not a whole lot there maybe uh you know a pitch clock maybe uh, a ban on the defensive shift there, there are a few things that they can do but the leverage points are much more in favor of the owners at this point because they're the ones who have the financial resources and they're the ones who are uh trying to tamp down pay as much as possible and this, listen, this is just classic business right here it's labor negotiation. Uh, the the workers are trying to get the most money out of the business owners, and the owners are trying to pay the least to the workers that they possibly can. And uh, it, you hope, as a baseball fan, that they reach a deal where not both sides are happy because that's not possible, but where both sides are not unhappy. That's when you know you've reached a good point, and that's where a deal's going to get struck, where it's more like we can both live with this rather than we're giddy with it.
0: We are talking to Jeff Passan, MLB insider for ESPN and ESPN.com, also author of The Arm. Jeff, from the owner's standpoint, you've also written this, quote, this is Rob Manfred's disaster, the league's disaster, the owner's disaster, and it's been a long time coming. And to quote. Let me ask you this. Do the commissioner and the owners know this lockout is a disaster, or do they think this is working out really well?
1: I think time's going to tell on that. And and the big question for me, 30,000-foot view of Major League Baseball right now, is do the people who are running the ship understand that if they don't steer it correctly, there is an iceberg ahead? And, And that iceberg is years of fandom lost on account of what's happening on the field right now. It's amazing to me, Jim, the level of play that we see from individuals and the overall play that just does not compare to it. Uh, it. It's a slow game, and I listen. I love baseball. I really love baseball. Not just because I've spent 20 years doing this job. I love everything about baseball. That it is a thinking person's game. That you can have uh, athleticism, uh, and you can have power. And there are so many different elements. You don't have to be six three, uh, you know, two twenty or six eleven. You can just be a five foot seven guy or in Jose Altuve's case, a five foot five guy who can go bat to ball and become a superstar. But the game's pace right now, it doesn't work long-term. It's just not sustainable. And I think the fact that MLB right now is more focused on trying to tamp down on the players than it is prioritizing the product on the field is concerning. I, I look at the players and listen, uh, Their opinion on that matters, too. But their priority right now, they feel like we got to get everything else straight because we are the product. And, uh, you know, the happier we are as workers, the better the game is going to be.
0: Jeff Passon joining us. Jeff, in terms of the players, let me ask you this. In the wake of the Astros' punishment, the commissioner did refer to the World Series trophy as, quote, a piece of metal. Let me ask you this. (laughs) Was that just a one-off, a slip of the tongue? Or is that something that the players have never forgotten, latched onto, in fact, and will always remember?
1: Every, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. Every single day in player meetings, it gets brought up. Every single thing mm. that gets wow. brought up—the fact that uh, salary arbitration—it's a you know core tenet of baseball's economic system, where after three years of service, you essentially get to argue for your salary. And salary arbitration has gotten a lot more contentious in recent years. And my friend Mark Carrig wrote a story a couple years ago talking about how the team uh, that does the best job in the commissioner's office view of uh, keeping salaries low, got a replica championship belt. And when players found out about the, the arbitration championship belt, they got pissed off. And when they saw Rob Manfred come out a couple of weeks ago and say that uh, investing in the S&P 500 is a more profitable venture than doing so on a major league baseball team, that bothered them. It, it's just this continuous list of grievances that players have and uh, you know they ask the question does rob manford really like the game yes i do think rob manford likes baseball but i also think that major league baseball writ large does things that uh, frankly defy logic reason sense and in that when that happens the players get more and more animated more and more aggrieved. the question jim is do they get more and more resolute? And There's a chance if there's not a deal today by 5 o'clock p.m. that we're going to find out the answer to that question.
0: I was going to say, Jeff, before you go then, so how do you see it playing out? Do you expect a deal to get done soon, or could you see the league canceling the first month of the season?
1: I don't know if we're going to get to a month. Um, Listen, negotiations can turn with one sentence, right? Like if you're in a room and you're trying to negotiate something and MLB says something to the players that makes them believe that uh, a deal is not just there to be had, but should be, then yeah, of course we're going to play. But it all depends, I think, on, on the trajectory of these negotiations today. Uh, I will say this, going into them, I'm not particularly confident that they're going to come out of it with a deal But uh, I I hope as a fan and as somebody who would love to cover games this season that they do.
0: And then if they don't, Jeff, if we're looking at a month or more, how much damage then does that do to their sport?
1: I think the day that a game is missed, Jim, is when the damage starts. And it's just going to compound. And how ugly this gets, I don't know. But if you're a sport whose relevancy in the sporting zeitgeist is not nearly what it used to be. And you're losing games for what, to many in the public, fair or not, amounts to a money fight. It's just a bad look, the bad look for everybody involved, no matter who's on the right side morally. You know, everyone is going to get blamed for this. And while I don't think the blame uh, is it's fair to equally dish it out, um, I, it doesn't matter when games are lost. Uh, you start turning off fans. Uh, you start turning off casuals who might have turned into fans. You start turning off would-be fans who might have turned into fans. And remember, it took Cal Ripken, and Sammy Sosa to rescue Major League Baseball from the debacle that was 1994 and 1995. I don't know that there's a Cal Ripken Mark McGuire or Sammy Sosa around these days and you cannot bank on there being a panacea appearing out of nowhere
0: Zeitgeist panacea. Hey Jeff, really quickly remember when you appeared on my show and your son walked onto the set and he was the smartest little kid I had ever seen how old is yep. he now and has he split the atom yet or what is he doing? Because he was uh, the smartest now, little guy I ever seen
1: Yeah, he's now 14 years old uh, he is playing baseball and is kind of good. Uh, he's taller than I am, which isn't saying much, but still going to be the first six-foot passing in history uh, and uh, just finished uh, eighth in a citywide math competition and is going to state this weekend. Oh, beautiful.
0: Love it. Good to hear it. Jeff Passin, and not surprised by any of that, by the way, an MLB insider for ESPN and ESPN.com, author of The Arm, and I would say that is the most triumphant return to this program in program history. My man, appreciate you so much, Jeff. That was so fun and so good to get caught up, Jeff. Thanks so much for doing it. You're the best, Jimmy. Thanks you for too, having me. You too, dude. It. Paul's dog. Hey, Paul's dog, what's up?
1: There once
2: was a man named Jeff Passon who cracked on Paul's dog, not laughing. That jerk is a hack. His takes are all whack. If I see him, I'll bite on his ass and
0: roughly rum route. Pause dog responding <laughs> with a limerick. Hey now, are you craving some protein after a good workout? Do not make a shake, do not eat a bar reach for a bag of beef jerky from Old Trapper. Old Trapper beef jerky is tasty. It's tender. It's made with real strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a wood fire, and it goes wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach. Look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying that way. Look for it in major retail stores near you and clones. If you don't see it, just ask for it by name because no other jerky compares Old Trapper, what is your beef? All right, so quickly, DeAndre Jordan certainly has not had a Hall of Fame career, except DeAndre Jordan has had a memorable career, from having the highest career field goal percentage in NBA history to leading the association twice in rebounding to looking like he would never make another free throw to being held hostage by his former and current Clipper teammates in 2015 to becoming a multi-multi-millionaire who pretended to fart on people at Venice Beach. DeAndre's run is truly one-of-one stuff. And now we could add another memorable walk-off to pad that already amazing resume. Going out like a bleeping boss is a Laker. Yes, his run with the Lakers lasted just 32 games, but he will be forever remembered as a member of the Lakers, for how it ended. Because this dude went straight legend with arguably the greatest pass of all time. Yes, I said it. Arguably the greatest pass of all time. I'm talking about the purest dime ever. You think about the finest distributors of the rock in league history. Who comes to mind? Irv, Kidd, Stockton, Kuzi, even Maravich. None of these guys ever, ever found their man in the way DeAndre did in his last game as a Laker. And yes, a day after the pass, the pass scene, no, the pass experience around the world that started on the crypt hardwood that nearly ended in the convention center parking lot, the Lakers have in fact released the big man. They did. And for what? In part, in all, was it because of the pass? Jordan's going to bring it out of the backcourt and throws it (laughs) 10 feet over the head of Wayne Ellington. Where was he throwing that up in this concession? He
1: threw it to Rich Paul. That's 20 turnovers. Now they got 20, right, Doug? No matter. They can't dispute it now. That that ball looked like a pass, like a beach ball in in a hurricane.
0: And you're right. It almost hit LeBron's agent, Rich Paul, in the head. Now, you know what it looked like to me? Art. Absolute art. I mean, why cut that guy for that? Cut him. I'd build him a bleeping statue right outside the arena. And I'd put it right next to that Dodonis to memorialize that play personally. Did you not see him own it? And acknowledge that it was his bad? Like, we live in a world where we're asking for extreme ownership, but rarely see it. But there was DeAndre saying, yeah, yeah, my bad. My bad. My bad. He tried to own the best, worst pass ever for the entire world to see. He didn't point the finger at anybody else. He pointed it at himself. Like, yo, my bad. My bad. As if it would be anybody else's. I mean, you were the dude who let it fly. But ask me. My bad was his good. Actually, his great. Actually, his perfection. One of the greatest plays in league history. You see, for all you dopes coming at DeAndre and clowning him right now, maybe, just maybe, he's not the dumbest guy in the room. Maybe, just maybe. He's the smartest guy in the room. Maybe, just maybe, he is the smartest guy ever. Because maybe, just maybe, this was actually part of a plan. An incredible plan. Of course, he was punished for that allegedly errant pass. And that punishment was being cut. Yeah, right. Who's laughing now, wise asses? My guess is this modern-day Einstein knew exactly what the hell he was doing. Did this dude not join a team that was expected to win an NBA championship? And is this same team not one of the biggest disappointments, not only in Laker history, but in league history? You think maybe, just maybe, this guy was looking to get off the purple and gold Titanic and simply took matters into his own hands by throwing that rock out of the building altogether? Iceberg, right ahead! Wouldn't you? If you were as smart as this guy, you would. So instead of maybe hating on DeAndre, maybe you show this cat some respect. Maybe even some love. That's a next-level move if there ever was one. For all I know, DeAndre might have been on the bench before he checked in and said to his guys, yo, watch this. Yo, fellas, check this. I'm going to embrace my inner point, DeAndre. Start a fast break. And then dot- the popcorn vendor, then they'll have to get rid of me. Jordan comes up with it. Oh, wow. Hey, now. Too high, too high. Thought the fans deserved a souvenir after this. Let me tell you something. Half his teammates have got to be livid that they did not come up with that idea themselves. DeAndre is a freaking genius. Not only did he get off that sinking ship, he no longer has to sit in when LeBron turns off the projector from their latest loss and says, Yo, fellas. This tape of us getting hammered again, it's not doing a damn thing for us. Let's have some fun. Let's watch my movie, Space Jam 2, again. No! No! Bro, please! Anything but that. Let's watch the Pelicans without Zion kick our ass again. Come on, man. Not Space Jam 2. Not again. No! Man, you know DeAndre was thinking that. I guarantee this dude was thinking that. I guarantee this dude was thinking, man... If Braun makes me watch that movie one more time, I'll straight up walk. I'll leave all that dough on the table. I don't even care how much I'm owed. No way in hell i watch Space Jam 2 again. I'll walk. I'll walk into oncoming traffic before I do that again. Wait a minute. I got an idea. Next time they put me on the floor, I'm going to run like I'm Irv and bleep. And I'm going to dot. Bronze dude rich paul in the stands yeah man that bleep will humiliate him they ain't having it it'll go viral and they will run my ass down they'll run my ass out of here and not only will I be off this sinking ship i will never have to watch space jam 2 ever again oh and wait for it somebody who actually matters is going to want me and I will no longer be known as the seven-foot multimillionaire who used to fart on people in public parks. Holy crap, I'm a genius. Holy crap, he is. Look at this rocket scientist now. Woj tweeted, the 76ers will aggressively pursue him after his Laker release. Like I said, genius, who in the hell on the Lakers wouldn't rather be in Philadelphia right now? The 76ers have a shot at winning the Larry O. The Lakers don't even have a shot at a set of steak knives. For real, DeAndre now has a chance to play with Vintage Beard and back up the favorite to win the NBA MVP in Joel Embiid. He's got as good a shot as anyone at ripping that ring. And you're going to tell me that legendary pass was the final straw. My ass. That Pistol Pete no-looker was a ticket to get the hell off that garbage team. Garbage. And never have to see Space Jam 2 ever again. Dwight the Enforcer. Mellow. Hell. Braun himself. Wish they had thought of that. You know. You know, I should be sick of the Lakers, but I'm not. This circus is only going to get better. Now that carny crime does not get you punished, but rather rewarded, it's getting even better. If it's the prime crime, then it's the perfect basketball crime. (laughs) Like, what the hell is going to happen tonight? Downtown against Dallas. I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. The Lakers have gone from can't watch to can't miss TV all together now. <laughs> DeAndre, you are smart, dude. <laughs> 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 <speaks> So you know the best athletes know that your championship body is not built in a day. Well, the same is true when it comes to your long-term financial goals. Get financially fit with M1, the finance super app. It is commission-free, and it makes growing your money easier so you can strategize for the end game. Build a custom portfolio or choose a pre-built portfolio that speaks to your goals. Then automate your everyday money moves and use your extra time to watch the highlights. They even make it easy to stick to your investing strategy by automatically rebalancing your investments every time you buy into your portfolio, keeping your investments close to where you want them to be. That way, your portfolio sticks to the plan for the long game. There are no huddle-ups necessary. Visit m1finance.com sports that's M with the number one. Sign up and see why Money, Investopedia, and Yahoo Finance are proud superfans of M1. That's M, the number one, dot com slash sports. Investing does involve risk, including the risk of loss. M1 Finance, LLC, member F-I-N-R-A-S-I-P-C. He is Sep Straka. Sep, really nice to have you on. How are you?
2: I'm doing good.
0: How about you? you. I'm for great. Me. Nice to have you. Thanks so much for doing it. So let me ask you, you were five strokes back at the start of the final round Sunday. When you're in a spot like that, were you thinking about making a run or initially, is it just about posting a nice number and then seeing what happens next?
2: Uh, yeah, I think it's more about just posting a number and seeing what happens next. I knew that uh, if Berger, you know, went out there and shot 66, there really wasn't much I could do. So part of it was kind of out of my control. I could just kind of focus on just shooting a good score and kind of seeing from there.
0: All right. So you bogey the first hole, which obviously is not the way you want to start, but then you come right back. You bounce back quickly with birdies on two and three. How were you feeling through the first three holes?
2: I was nervous. I was nervous the whole day. <laughs> um, but yeah, that that I putted well all week and then I missed a real short one on the first hole for par. And uh, that's, that, the good thing is it didn't really rattle me. I, I had a chance to make uh, about an eight nine footer on the next hole for birdie and uh, made that. Kind of was good to reinforce the fact that I was that I was putting well and I just needed to give myself looks.
0: I'm going to talk about your short game in a minute to Sep Straka joining us. You know it's really it's really interesting and I really appreciate the honesty when you said I was actually nervous the entire day. I'm curious then. That said, at what point in the round do you start thinking, Hey man, I've got a chance to win this thing? Or is that not the process? Do you just completely shut out any thoughts like that the entire way? Like, how do you think your way through a round like that?
2: Um, I, de- I definitely knew I could win. I knew there was only one guy ahead of me, and crazy things happen on that golf course. It's a brutal course with a lot of water, and you can you can make some high numbers. So I knew all day that I had a chance to win. Uh, but in 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 order to do that, I had to kind of you know, just remind myself, just keep focusing on every shot, keep executing, and then uh, and then see if you can end up being there, because you really, it's a hard golf course, you really can't force it out there.
0: Right, so the track is one thing, crazy things do happen on that course, but then you've got the elements, right? Like, it starts to rain heavily, so how are you able to maintain your composure and focus during the weather change?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was on the, on the last hole, I was fortunate, I got to hit my tee shot uh, before it started raining, and uh, we were standing there, had a seven iron out already, uh, and, then, and then switched into a six iron once it started raining because, I mean, it was coming down hard. And, uh, yeah, it almost refocused me uh, because I was thinking, you know, on the last hole all about trying to win, trying to do this, and, uh, and that kind of refocused me to just make sure that I was uh, just trying to execute my shot, and, and I was able to do that.
0: Sepp Straka coming off his first career PGA Tour win. So I'm curious, when it's over, when it's over, and you clinched your first PGA Tour win, does it feel the way you expected that it would? What did it feel like?
2: Uh, it's crazy. I, I still really hadn't completely sunk it in yet. I mean, just uh, it, my mind's just been racing really since since that uh, since that Sunday. Um, just. Thinking about you know one thing I'm thinking about two year exemption then I'm thinking about the masters and and it's just been it's just been crazy the, the different things that are uh,
0: you know. talking to Seb Straka we just lost you Seb for one minute I want to make sure that we can reestablish that connection because it started to fade out just a little bit do you guys want to pick that up Yeah, we'll see like that song always makes me laugh but it's never a positive when it happens. All right, so, Seth, we lost you for a second, but I did hear your answer. You know, the thing is, to me, the the thing about the win is you did not back into that in any sense. You beat Daniel Berger, who you mentioned, who had a big lead going into the day, and you had a major winner in Shane Lowry as well, who shot a bogey-free 67. So how much confidence does it give you going forward to not only win, but win the way you did?
2: Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, on a hard golf course like that, to shoot 66 on the last round was, uh, to get the win is, is the huge confidence builder. Um, I feel like my confidence has been building a little bit over the last few months. I've been playing some pretty good golf, shooting some good numbers on some hard golf courses. Uh, so that, that's definitely a huge confidence boost going, going into the rest of the order stretch.
0: Now your wife, Paige, flew in for the final round. When did you first see her and what did it mean to share that win with her?
2: Yeah, she flew in. She surprised me. Um, she flew in, and the first time I saw her was when I walked out on the putting green before my round. <laughs> wow. So, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a nice surprise to be able to see her there. My mom drove down on Sunday as well, so it was nice to be able to, to share that with them.
0: All right, so you were talking about all the things that are going through your mind as you kind of process this, and it sinks in, including the Masters. Of course, that win means you will be playing in the Masters in a few weeks. How does it feel to know that you've got that trip waiting for you?
2: Uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's been a lifelong dream of mine uh, with my mom, uh, being a Georgian and me growing up in, in South Georgia uh, from, from high school on, it's just been a huge dream. And then obviously I went to the University of Georgia right down the road, and uh, I just feel like that'll be uh, almost like a home event.
0: Sepp Straka joining me for a few more moments. I said I would get to your short game. Let me ask you this, because you've said that one of the things that has changed over the course of your career is your short game, that you've always been a really good ball striker, but in college, your short game was not as good as you would have liked. So how have you improved it over the years? Like, for instance, is it more about physical and mechanical changes, or is it more about changing your mental approach? Sep, I was talking to you about your – thanks for calling back. I appreciate that. Good hustle by you. We were talking about your your putting game and how it changed. And I wanted to ask you before you dropped off that how much of the change in your short game is about physical changes and then how much of it was just about changing your mental approach?
2: Um, Yeah. So, I'm working with a guy named Tim Yelverton for about a few years now, two or three years now. Yeah. And uh, we did – at first we did, especially in the chipping, a a good bit of physical changes. Yeah. and we just kind of made it a little more shallow. And, uh, yeah, we, we definitely did some physical changes. And now it's kind of week to week with the putting and the chipping. It's just kind of getting used to the grass because uh, we're on different uh, surfaces every week. So just getting used to the grass, getting used to playing shots. And, and a lot of it is kind of anticipation.
0: All right, so something really important before you go and before I lose you, I know that you're a big Diet Coke guy. I understand this. Like, I I don't drink soda at all except Diet Coke if I'm going to do it. My question is, what do you do if you're going to a tournament where you know they only serve Pepsi?
2: Yeah, certain events are Pepsi events, and uh, I'll go to the grocery store and and make sure I always have some Diet Coke um, ready for me. So I'll, I'll usually just put a few in my locker and then get a cup of ice uh, wherever I am and, uh, and drink my diet Coke. So I'm, I'm pretty particular about that.
0: No, I get that. So you're, you're going to bring your own. If it's a Pepsi tourney, then you're going to bring your own. You tell me, and I, I get this already. I understand this. Like if I ask, and I'll do the same thing. I don't even say diet Coke. I'll say, do you have Coke or Pepsi? If they say a restaurant says Pepsi, I say, I'll have water. If not, I'll get a diet Coke. Help me with this. Yeah. What makes diet Coke better than Pepsi?
2: You know, I don't know. I feel like Pepsi's just a little a little flat and kind of tastes a little syrupy. Diet Coke is just the perfect mixture, you know, some nice carbonation and uh, and just an incredible taste, really.
0: By the way, you're right. 100%. I could not have said that better. I, I could not agree with you more than that. I'm so glad that we fought our way through whatever technical issues we had to set the record straight there. <laughs> Sepp, great to have you to on. Thank you very much. Stuff. Good luck. And I hope we can do it again soon.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Good night now!